Alan Davis is one of the UK's most beloved comics, and now he's written a book called Just Ignore Him. I read it without knowing anything much about its contents, and found myself being profoundly moved by the subject matter. It's been embargoed before its publication on the 3rd of September, so in this podcast I can only allude to some of the darker and more meaningful moments. So instead, we started out discussing the origins of his love for Arsenal. Um, You are a diehard Arsenal fan. And what comes across in the book that that is a legacy from your mum giving you a shirt. Or did she actually give it to you or was it around and you you felt she'd given it to you? Well, I always thought that it was given to me by her and that was my memory of it. And that's one of the interesting things about memories. It's wrong most of the time. Mm. And then I discovered some photographs from 1971 and there's my brother in the Arsenal shirt. So he'd had it before me, or as you say, it was around. And um, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was just a kind of a grey area who's, I don't know what my mother's allegiances were, if there were any, but my my brother followed my father and, and has continued to do so. And I, um, I just preferred the shirt. I like the white sleeves and the red. Why not? So they, hang on, so you So I don't think my brother wanted me to, be a Tottenham Hotspur supporter. He, I think he wanted me to be different. I don't think he wanted me to be alive, actually. <laughs> Sometimes you get, when you're a younger sibling, you think, this person really is not into me at all. And that's, and, and it's not uncommon, you know, when you go to school and your older sibling does, ignores you or does yes. pretend that you don't exist. And they hate that. it and when I you had, get into I the same that. school. Yeah, oh my God, oh, he hated awful. it. And yeah. I was put up a year, so I left, uh, it was a terrible disaster, but... I missed what is now year six completely. And now my daughter's just coming to the end of year five. And the idea that she would miss year six and go straight to high school now is absurd, but that's what happened to me. And so I was suddenly in the same school as my brother and suddenly in the year below, directly below, instead of two years below. And it drove him mad. Insult. <laughs> and an Arsenal fan to boot. Yeah. I mean, we are, the street where I used to live, uh, it was very, very strange. So our side of the street was all Arsenal and the other side was all Spurs. It was one of these narrow Victorian streets and all the banners and the flags would come out. And this, so, I mean, it was all very good natured. But, you know, on Derby Day, it was a febrile, a febrile atmosphere, <laughs> I would say, with a lot, of, uh, a lot of booze. But it interests me that that is, I guess, when, when you've suffered a, a traumatic bereavement at a very young age, you're, even as you say, it might be a false memory, you're your imaginings have connected loyalty to a shirt and then to her so that there's something remains because a kind of, I don't know, fealty to, to, to a football team never dies, does it? It's not something that can, somebody can take away from you. It's permanent. No, it's permanent. It's an odd thing. It's hard to explain almost. But it's, I, I still also, it can be happen with other things. Like I still think of the jam as my favourite band and they can never be removed from that place. Even, Even though, though they've not released any new material, <laughs> released any record since 1982, <laughs> and I don't think I've listened to any since 1983. No. So, has any band ever come close? Is, is that just it? I like the Stranglers. Yes, again, scant on new material. Yeah, it's quite sad recently. Dave Greenfield from the Stranglers, who was the wonderful keyboard player, 
and he passed away from COVID-19. It was, yeah. it was horrible. But they, I loved them. I saw them play live and they changed tack and they started doing some synthesizer music and talking about the men in black and uh, possible control of the earth from aliens. <laughs> so really odd mix, mishmash of cherry-picked ideas. Yeah. About, <laughs> every, band, every great band has to go through a conspiracy theory phrase. Though, so they know. created this album... Uh, which included, um, I think it included Golden Brown, which was their song. I, I do remember being at school and I had a friend who used to get sounds and it was into heavy metal and he knew more about these things than me. And he told me that Golden Brown was about heroin and I had no idea it was about heroin. I think the heroin might have had a part to play in their, their, <laughs> their whole record. <laughs> and anyway, so I go along to the, the Rainbow in the Finsbury Park to see the Stranglers and they had some ballet dancers dancing to synthesizer music uh, before they came out. And they were canned off. I mean, that you could just people throwing empty <laughs> beer cans at them. Punks from the 70s. <laughs> and, they weren't ready. <laughs> Stranglers did not attract those kind of King's Road punks. So they didn't no. have that kind of Vivian Westwood vibe at all. They had the kind of pub rock punks. That's what I loved about them. Sticky Floors and Dr. Martins are not ballet. Not ballet. <laughs> Definitively not ballet. The Stranglers came out quite annoyed because they liked the ballet dancers and they were, so then they were kind of, they felt like there was going to be a conflict between <laughs> them and the, and the, and anyway, and then the gig started and it was, it was great. Have you ever, you haven't been canned off, presumably. There's been no bottle thrown during your illustrious career. And no. I'm thinking hard. Oh, no, things, no. Sometimes I can't imagine. Things, <clears throat> things do appear on stage, but it's usually things like sweets. Why sweets? They suddenly you... think you're going into some kind of <laughs> glucose shock. <laughs> he looks like he needs some sugar. Yeah. Um, he looks so like he's hypoglycemic. Sometimes I think, what are you eating? Are you eating something over there? And then you turn your back, and a Murray mint will come flying out of the gloom. Fair enough. But no, no really serious projectiles in my. <laughs> Um, I, I, in your book, you say that, that um, there are three things you need to be a comic. You need to be childish, angry, and shameless. And I think that's a very concise way of looking at the profession. I, I challenge sadly, anyone to take me on on those. I, I, yes, I, I only tick two of those boxes, which are childish and angry. But I'm so full of shame, it's really hampered my, my abilities. Oh, well, shameless is an interesting one, because you kind of... It doesn't mean you don't go home and... <laughs> Put your head in your hands and go, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's okay, then. What do people think of me? But it somehow have the capacity to be the one who stands up in front of everyone else in the room. So it's in the moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a tolerance of embarrassment, an ability to just front it out. And oh, my dog's, my little dog's just come in on that. that you could open yeah. the door. I'm impressed. Yeah. No, she smashes it. She deserves a bull terrier head. And could just basically just get get away through anything. This is a feature well, of a lockdown: is people's pets interrupting their <laughs> video calls. <laughs> She's just all she wants is food. Gee, I can't remember if you. No, no pets. I don't think pets. No, I think it's talk of a dog. Uh, okay. Um, um, I, my, my wife's quite into getting an Alsatian, and I love Alsatians because I used to have one. But my 10-year-old weighs about four stone. I mean, she would get dragged from here to Highgate Village. There's no way we could... <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind an Alsatian, but there's a slight whiff of Berta's Garden about the whole thing, isn't there? There's a slight... Just a, 
but still, I know it was a long time ago and I have to move on, but it's, it's still memories of Blondie ring. Like and also the backs go down. They've got a tapering arse. You know what I mean? They have terrible hip trouble. They're one of these breeds that has congenital defects. And so there's nothing wrong with them up front. They're fully alert. And they, can, <laughs> they know you're there, and they, but they can't stand up and they shit on the carpet. And then you have to have them put down. That's what happened to, to mine. It was well, why awful. Why yeah, so why do you want to repeat that childhood trauma? I Why'd don't best... really. No, you're trying to make your children watch it. You're going to look. Everyone's a right of passage, kids. Everyone needs a dog whose back end's gone and it just soils itself on a rug whilst trying to clap, whilst its front remains erect and delighted to yeah, see so you. Yeah, so if you've got a lead in your hand or a ball, she does all the same stuff with her face. It says, let's go. <laughs> and then actually, I can't. And can you carry me to the garden? <laughs> it's, it's ter- no, terrible. <laughs> well, you want something maybe a bit... Um, uh, the fad for hypoallergenic dogs is... That's what you want, isn't it? Yeah, those... that's the thing. But I, I want a dog that's not got any built-in obsolescence, you know. I want some dog that's going to live a, a robust life and then eventually just choose to walk under a bus. <laughs> what? In a noble act of self-sacrifice to spare you the trip to the vets? I'm checking out. <laughs> yeah. In a kind Tell of dig- dignitas. <laughs> dignitas for pets has been around for years. It's available on every high street. Yes, although there's... There's not a great sense of them being able to sort of sanction their own end, is there? It's a sort of dignitas by proxy. Yeah, so no, I they... think if she could have spoken, she'd have said, hey, come back, don't leave me in this room with this man. He said, do you want to stay with her while I do the injection? And I said, no, and I watched the door close. And I, as the door shut and I knew he was doing it, I was filled with regret and I should have stayed. I don't want to make your regret worse, but I did read something by the Veterinary Association of America saying that... Uh, that's the most upsetting thing about being a vet is that the owner's leaving. But is I'm it sure really? you, yeah, well, I just feel now I've lamb. By the way, I, can I just say, as someone who sat through many a euthanasia, that makes sounds bad. It's really bad, and so I think you spared yourself needless pain. Yeah, well, I did think it was going to be awful, and I was going to find it incredibly upsetting. You would have done. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Best Fiends. That's Fiends, friends without the R. If you've been listening to season two of the podcast, you'll know that Best Fiends is a mobile puzzle game which engages your brain and is great fun for everyone. I've been playing the last couple of months and I don't want to show off, but I have made it past level 100. Still hundreds more levels to go and thousands of those fiendish slugs to defeat. Uh, Whether you're waiting for your morning coffee or you've got a free five minutes at home, Best Fiends is a great way to keep that brain active and keep it away from social media. Once you've downloaded the game, you don't need to be connected to the internet to play it, which is perfect these days with everyone at home wanting to stream videos, play games or have video calls. They've created a whole new world on my phone with visually stimulating challenges, bright colours and cute characters. The game updates monthly with new levels and events, so it never seems old or stale. With over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated puzzle game is just banging fun. You can download it for free right now. Just go to the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Fiends, friends without the R. Best Fiends. The last time, not the last time I saw you, but one that I remember you were moving house and you said to me the previous owner had had chickens. Is that a false memory or is that true? Because you were having, hadn't the chickens 
attracted some sort of horrific mega rats. There, were, there was a rat colony in the garden. No one wants a colony. Anyway. Um, it was really incredible. And we went to, we're living in that house now. There are no longer rats. And the chicken's gone as well. <laughs> <laughs> Just Armageddon, isn't it? Really? I, I'm going to say you shouldn't have any done. pets. What we should have done, I'm, I'm a vegetarian, but my wife isn't, and neither of the kids. What we should have done, immediately we arrived, was kill the chicken, pluck it and roast it. Because we, that we seems didn't extreme. Want to but instead of that, we took it to a city farm and they didn't want it. They said she was very difficult to get in, a, get in at night. <laughs> she got rejected by a city the farm. The owner, who I bought this house from, he left a trampoline in the garden and he left, he left a safe. He left so much junk everywhere. He was, you know, was one of these kind of rich, hamster people who normal rules don't apply. And he left a chicken and he said, they eat anything. And I moved in here and I was surrounded by boxes and Katie was with her parents, with her kids who were very small. And uh, I, I didn't have anything. I, looked, I thought, what have I got? I had some blueberries and some pita bread. That was it, weirdly. <laughs> Those were my supplies on the first night. So I went out and gave this stuff to this, this chicken. And sure enough, it was all gone. But the reason it was all gone a few hours later was because the rats came and ate the lot. There, were, there was a shed adjoining the chicken run. Oh, God with rats living in it. And then there were burrows long established under the chicken run that went up the side of the house. So they, they've been living with rats, this family, for years. How many rats do you reckon? Uh, I, well, we put some poison down and found two. <clears throat> but there were, I reckon there were half a dozen rats. I once had a man called Kevin from a firm called Arrestopest uh, come round. And he did a lot of chats. He was a great guy. So I'm not, I don't mean to uh, in any way sort of damage his reputation, but he did say to me, this is what happens is they eat the poison and they get very hot, really hot internally. And they have to run away. So they will never die inside the house. They will always be miles away. Open the back door, literally it was dead on the, on the mat with its sort of paws up and its sort of big old teeth hanging out. But that had been living in the, um, in the walls. So at night, I could hear it sort of eating the electrics. Yeah. And that would be sort of Russian roulette as to whether the oven would work, whether the oven would blow up. Well, we live in a Victorian house and there, it feels like there's a whole lot going on in between the floors and in the floorboards and around, all around you all the time. But it's near the, the thing is, if you live near the ponds, that's a thing. The water, have you seen them at night? Oh, no. they're, like, they're like half a metre long coming. Oh, it's not right. They absolutely <laughs> terrify me. Um, I, something else that I, a quote that I took from your book, that's, that I'm much of it saying to me, but uh, for obvious reasons, but that in terms of performance, you saying that performing replicated as a sort of, a need to get mother's attention and to get the mother's love because no one else could stomach that degree of need. I thought that was the perfect way to describe comedy. It's that only a captive audience can replicate the devotion of a mother. And, and yeah, and they're locked in. Yes, that's right. I think that undivided attention uh, it's a very rare thing, and uh, subsequently, but I never made the connection that that I was looking for that in the audience, or that that might be what it was doing for me, uh, having lost my mother. I didn't. I didn't think that was the case. I think subsequently, years later, I realised that it probably was. So, did you think you were just on a sort of an adrenaline treadmill? You thought, oh, I like this feeling, this high, and then when it goes, I want it again. Yeah, I just thought I had an aptitude for it. 
For oh, sure. this is a stroke of luck. I've got, I've got an aptitude for this. I can do this. And the clubs are opening up, which are run by nice people. There are loads of funny people around. I can earn money. So there were, it was a kind of a perfect storm. And lots of really good comedians appeared in, in that, on that little circuit at that time because it was such a nice place to work and develop material. And the clubs were nice and it was, they were full. And I didn't, it, I never stopped to question, really until I started to write my book, why I had an aptitude for this or what, what it was that enabled me to shut my eyes to all the psychological trauma of standing in front of people. I mean, they're really the chronic nerves, the handshaking nerves. And for a long time, I couldn't take the microphone out of the stand and hold it when I was doing stand-up comedy because my hands were shaking so much. Really? So all the way through? All the way through the set? Through the, throughout the set, I didn't have the confidence to get the mic in my hand. So I used to go and stand. I used to practice with a broom handle in the back of a chair, try, because memorising the set, if you're not gigging very often, is almost impossible. So just running, the, I was running my set, running my set till I could remember it. And then I got to the point where I could remember it and could do it at blistering speed. So I used to do the set terrifically quickly. <laughs> wanted to get to the end of it in, a, in the kind of top of a broom handle which replicated a mic in a stand and then one time I think I was at the Banana Cabaret in Ballum and I was standing on some uh, temporary stage which was made up I don't know what supporting it beer crates I suppose and it was a bit rickety and wobbly so the stand was moving so that and that was causing some noise to go through the PA and I thought I'm just going to have to take this microphone out of the stand it's too noisy and then I started to walk about and I found that people were laughing at the way I was walking, which is, I wasn't really in control. I mean, often as a comedian, you think, why are they laughing at that? Oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just do it again. Yes. But I found that I could sort of add in, uh, act out some of my stories and make things a bit more physical. And it was an element of, there are lots of skills for a comedian, you know, and if you've got, if you're a truly great comedian like Richard Pryor, you have the full set, you know, you have the rage, you have the physicality, you can do the yeah. you've got the material, you've got the timing, you've got the audience banter, you've got the all, the whole set of skills, you know, you can play anywhere on the pitch, as it were, if you were a footballer. I was obsessed with Richard Pryor as well, I think, yeah, yeah and, it's, and it's only, it's only as a, as a sort of proper sort of grown-up that you can look back and, as you say, identify all the the different things that make him the superhuman, but the rage, the, the righteous indignation, the fire, because he never phoned anything in, you know, and I think we're used to so many, you just see it and it's the same shtick and it's all, he might be doing the same shtick, but the, the, the pilot light was reignited every time and you, you felt it meant something. He kind of found that, didn't he, later on when he'd, he realised that, he was angry, I suppose. When he was young, he was eager to please like any young performer. And you don't really think you're going to get anywhere and why would you get anywhere? You're just hopeful. Yeah. And then once you find an audience and once you find your voice, what it is you want to say, well, he was really extraordinary. And he had all the deeply troubled uh, past that's uh, necessary, it turns out, and the kind of tears of a clown cliche, which is uh, a cliche for a reason, because it's nearly always true. And actually, there's a sort of, and no one talks about this, but I think some comics are deeply scathing of those who haven't got that trauma. You know, I think there's a, there's a degree of sort of um, 
uh, indignation when, when a young comic pops up who's freshly minted and has come from a very good family and have gone to a very good school. It's just, everything's wonderful. Um, <laughs> and I think everyone then just goes, oh, it, okay, well, we're now going to sort of thrash you about a bit. <laughs> well, I think that's right. I think sometimes you see a comedian and think, well, this person seems to have all the attributes and the skill set and they're doing saying all the right things, but for some reason, I'm not connecting. They've, they're obviously not troubled enough. <laughs> well, there's now this almost this thing of, it might have gone the other way because every, every Edinburgh now, well, people joke about, you know, doing the, the dead parent show and it's a sort of rite of passage, isn't it? That every comic has to devote an hour to, you know, a, a complex grief stricken uh, sort of relationship they, they had, but that was not always the case. No, well, it used to be the case that the comedian was supposed to leave them laughing. Leave them laughing. <laughs> Go on. Now, do, it's do you crying. You've got to get to the end of your set and say thank you all much, so so much for staying with me through what's been a traumatic hour for us all. Not least the reviewer from Broadway, Baby, who's got to give five stars to us. It. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. It, doesn't... <laughs> is there anything <laughs> more degraded in this life? That was brilliant. <laughs> Is there anything more meaningless in this life than a five-star review in Broadway? <laughs> They've yet to learn that the more sparing they are with those five stars, the more value they yeah, would have. But also, the more people will pick up Broadway Baby is if every other line it said, well, you see this one, it's shit. <laughs> yes. Well, that was the reason people used to get the Scotsman. You can absolutely guarantee at least sort of five one-star pasters. Yeah. Often I found they were about shows that I'd been involved in. So what I, I'd tune in for some sort of fun-loving schadenfreude and then find that actually the shit was very much on my own doorstep. Yeah. Well, was that my name? Well, I, had a, I had a, knew a guy who used to do a, a lunchtime comedy show at the Fringe and uh, invite people to do a set. And he would only invite people who'd had a one-star review. <laughs> and, uh, and he got in touch with me and said, would you like to come and do my lunchtime show? And I said, isn't that the one-star review show? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, I, I haven't seen this, this one-star review. <laughs> Can you imagine if it was Broadway Baby? Can you imagine if it got that bad? <laughs> I said, have I had a one-star review? He said, yeah, yeah, you have. Who's done it? You want me to tell you about it? I said, no, I don't. Oh God! I always remember that, that there'd be a billion performers, or one of the you know one of the bars in Edinburgh, and it's just like, oh, I'm so sorry about that review. And I just think, what a shit way of telling me that I'm. You yeah. know, I mean, it's always that, isn't it? Just... Yeah. Oh no, I didn't. Mate, he would come up and he'd say, I didn't think that was fair. <laughs> what they wrote about you in that, I didn't think that was fair at all. And so you've got to say, what have you? Where have you sit? What have no? Just was horribly passive aggressive, isn't it? I also remember. You see, say that you don't remember holding the mic, but my memories of you were always very physical, and I mean, not to to, to a Lee Evans degree, but but very uh, physically very present. And then you talk about the lying down as well, and you equate that to a childhood thing. And I, of course, as a, as, a, as an audience member, you don't see that, but that's something that you've you've come to the realization of it over time. Yeah, well, it's so many things in writing a memoir and really trying to, really trying to get dig into the things that are upsetting to think about, never mind write about, or hard to get down on the page. 
my experiences of my in my family, my mother dying, my family relationships and experiences that I subsequently really had to address in adult life and tried to address, and it was hugely difficult to do. And can I can only, only really manage to detail it in this book, but as. A, so many things I could remember. The, the penny would drop, and I'd say, "Oh my God, I used to do that." Well, that's surely because of this and this and this. And, and mm -hmm. I used to do this thing with my mother, where I'd lie on the floor and entertain her by using my feet as windscreen wipers, and, and she liked it and get me to do it for her friends and so on. And found myself in in comedy clubs in my early twenties, uh, frequently in the middle of a set, lying on the floor waving my arms and legs about either being I'd had a quite I mean it was a funny routine but it was it's about horses at the Grand National who could talk you know both lying at a fence with broken legs go well I suppose they'll be along in a minute will they I mean they won't leave us here will they because the other horses will come round in a minute and then they'll land I mean they're bound they'll probably move oh here they come now yeah we're over here and then there's the gunshot yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, but that, that that and a couple of other routines involved me lying on the floor and I thought, oh God, I was really, all this stuff that's inside you, that's yours, that's yours. That you play out again and again, and sometimes you play out emotionally and sometimes you play out overtly and sometimes you play out physically in that case. But I suppose we could talk obliquely about the, the memoir, but the, the title just, it, it makes the reader think that yours is a classic story of overlooked child who then overcompensates by becoming one of Britain's best love entertainers. Um, and that actually, because that is, that is the most common narrative, isn't it, of, of, of people who go into comedy. It's like, nobody paid me enough attention and therefore I'm going to inflict this on all of you until you're all watching, <laughs> until I've conversed you all. And whilst there's elements of that that are truthful, of course it's, it's a much more dark and subversive narrative. Uh, than that. I was really struck by, um, you talk about playing the piano, that felt like a very painful, a painful moment, you know, wanting to do something creative and to express something and it being clamped down upon. Yeah, well, the piano teacher died. That was, this is a, such a feature of my childhood, it's a kind of constant yeah. uh, bereavement, which and, uh, and the way bereavement was managed was to not talk about it at all. So it just was not discussed at all. If a grandparent died, they were never mentioned again. My mother died, she just was not mentioned again. I mean, really, not literally, not completely, but pretty much. And so we would turn up at my aunt and uncle's house for Sunday lunch and like, we'd have these long lunches with all the, and she would never come up. No one would ever share a memory of her or tell a story about her or something that happened one Christmas or on one holiday or what about that time where it was a kind of collusion of silence and, and that happened with grandparents. And so when I was having piano lessons and quite, I had no aptitude for this at all. I couldn't get the fingers in the right places. He was a very nice guy, the piano teacher, who was elderly and he passed away. And I, it didn't impact, but I, except that, I still remember him quite well. And, and, and what I've learned through this kind of archaeology, really, of memory is, mm -hmm. is that things that, you, that really stay with you 
are probably often things that were some discomfort or some trauma or something that wasn't acknowledged at the time. But the reason you know it was serious is because it's it's recallable, as it were. It's there, yes. present. And it must have impacted terrifically hard on me. But I just carried on the next next week. There wasn't a piano lesson. So it was obviously some kind of outlet, even though you you know you might not have mastered it. That's not the point about music, isn't it? It's it's, it's actually a way of releasing stuff, making a noise from a mechanical, repetitious movement driven by feelings and instinct. And when that's taken away, maybe it's just another way of blocking you expressing how you feel. Yes, I think that's true. I think any kind of creative activity, any kind of creative activity is, is essential for peace of mind, for mental health. I think you hear, constantly hear about, I had a friend who worked with a theatre company who do work in prisons, and the, and the value of creative activity for people who are incarcerated or people who are restricted in any way or are shut down or quietened or the, the idea, draw something, make something, do something off your own bat. I know it from my children's, watching my children, how incredibly tedious the national curriculum is for them. Now the hoops they have to jump through, little hoops every day, boxes that have to be ticked somewhere that's been all been worked out in some department in Whitehall and filters out through the system. And the, my wife writes children's books and I'm a, a creative person. I want, they want to tell stories and they are, I can't, how do they do it without gouging their eyes out? It's so dull. It's so dull. Constantly inviting them to my little boy can really draw really very well and much better than me already. You know, really desperately keen for him to keep that going and, mm. to, and to write poems and draw pictures and have piano lessons. And, because without it, I think it's almost impossible mm. to not have, I don't know, a variety of mental health yeah. conditions to a greater or lesser extent. I think just that on its own, just su suppressing a a joy in an activity is damaging, but then you, you, you add the fact, as you say, that at Christmas or family occasions, you just don't talk about the past. And for me, this book is part of its many pains and many, and the reason it's so compelling is that you're on your own forced to piece together truth, circumstance, trajectories, all those sorts of things when really you know, in an ideal world, you're supposed to do that in a context, family usually. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, what I've discovered uh, so much about the way I'm able to reflect now on my childhood or on my past or on significance of, of events is now through this prism of being a parent myself and seeing, mm. I've got a daughter and two boys and seeing my boy at the age I was when my mother died, seeing seeing the two boys together and the way I was with my my brother and and I'm able to almost rediscover perhaps but the significance of events through seeing that, through understanding that. And it's interesting you went and did a court you know, you studied. You you this is this is a book that you didn't sit, just sit down and write, but you 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 wanted to be in a programme 
So why was that so important? Because you're an incredibly creative person. You could have just sat down and written it. Why did you need that structure around you? Um, I went to Goldsmiths to do their um, creative writing MA and I, I wanted to go back to college. I lived for a while near the university in Holloway in North London and I used to go past the university and go past see the students going in and out and I used to think, mm. well, that must be so much fun, you know. You'd see gaggles of young people and uh, and I I hated being at university. I did drama at Kent and I just couldn't get on with people and couldn't get on with the course and was sort of sullen and young and, you know, education. Youth is wasted on the young, if that's the cliche. So I don't think I, although I did start doing stand-up comedy there and I was in a lot of plays and I was very, very busy and active. I still felt like I didn't make the best of my time. And I think uh, Frank Skinner once said to me, lessons are good, which was such a good motto. He Mm. said, it's good to be having lessons, even if it's just tennis lessons, Spanish lessons, cooking lessons. As long as you're always having lessons in something, lessons are good. And that always always stuck with me. Anyway, I looked around and I found this course and a friend of mine had been to Goldsmiths and he'd done a radio production MA and he really liked it there. So I went down for an interview and I thought I was going to try and write fiction. I thought I was going to do kind of autobiographical fiction. And I started to read Edward St. Aubyn's books. I read all of those. They're brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And um, I thought that was what I was going to do. So the thing about being on a course is it makes you write. You've got to write 3,000 words for Wednesday because you're being workshopped. And the people who are workshopping you are fellow creative writing masters, students and some very expert teachers we had and I wrote initially in the third person or I changed the names of people or I as as the thing went on I did it over two years part-time my tutor Ardashir Bakil who was a lovely man very helpful was was intrigued why I didn't want to use my stand-up comedy voice to talk about these things. He said to me, write the things that, imagine no one's looking over your shoulder, write the things that make you cry, as if no one's ever going to read it. It's very important that you don't feel this is a safe space, no one's ever going to, things needn't leave this room. Everybody understands the rules. No one talks about anybody's work outside this space, online anywhere else so it's a proper confessional environment it's totally confessional and there, and blake morrison ran a life writing mm. group and life writing is a kind of coverall term for memoir autobiography what's known as auto fiction you know autobiographical fiction or whatever or different ways of getting your life on the page and uh and i felt completely safe there as i could i trusted people I got good feedback. I was able to give people feedback on their work. And as an, as an environment, it was fantastic. And I, and I started to find, after quite a lot of writings, a, a, vo- a voice that I was um, pleased with. And I, I, I found that if I tried to write a sort of linear memoir, I was born here, and mm. when I was two, this happened. When I was three, this happened. I couldn't do it. Memory was such an issue. But if I took some, a theme... One of the chapters is called Stamps, and it's mm. about it's about uh, my mother collecting co-op stamps, my father collecting Green Shield stamps, and my my own collection of stamps torn off envelopes, or you know, and we all had these stamps. And once I started writing about stamps, 
and what the stamps meant to me or where, how I came across them and where they, and I, and so many things occurred to me in that, in that exploration. And I realized that if I just allowed myself to explore an, an area, stuff would start to come up, stuff would emerge, memories would be shown to be false, new memories would appear. And I began to create these chapters that were kind of episodic, standalone, um, yeah, they're, they're sort of based around um, objects or, you know, items that then can move the story on or prick a certain new un yeah, understanding. I think it's really, it's beautifully structured and it really is. It's, it's, it, it's, it doesn't feel like a memoir. It feels like something much more profound than that. Oh, that's kind of, that's kind of easy to say. I try, I, I couldn't really... Uh, it took a long time to sort of organise it. And of course, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of give away too much about how the book mm -hmm. unfolds, but things happen in my life now subs that are really a, a, as a consequence of things that happened when I was a child and I, things that I needed to address. And so the book almost fell into two halves with a different voice and a different tone. And I, so I needed help. I hired an editor to help me there was a lot of repetition in chapters and there was a lot of editing and moving of material to try and balance that out to get this as a whole. And um, it's a tremendous amount of work. It's not just the physical work, it was the kind of mental preoccupation for two years or three years. Yeah. Every day. And uh, I, f I found lots of people that I trusted to read chapters. I was incredibly grateful. And I was sort of voraciously t absorbing notes, you know, and I, sort of, I, used to, when I used to think that I didn't want other people to tell me anything really about my work. And I wish as a young comedian I sought advice because many of my shows were kind of half formed, some bits good, some not, a bit directionless. But because I was funny, it didn't matter. But I could have perhaps done better work if I'd sought help. But I think the book, I think, is, I hope, is the best piece of work that I've done. And I hope that it will last and I hope that it will resonate with people, uh, you know, have had any, anybody who's got a family secret will, and, and that's probably everybody, right? Yes, although I think some are more traumatic than others, but I sort of, it made me feel lots of things and, and possibly we won't be able to go into that, that because as you say, you, you want this experience to be fresh for a reader and you, you don't want too much publicity around, around it to take the experience for them, but I felt as this book comes into the public domain, I felt like such a feeling of protectiveness that goes probably way beyond the limitations of how well I know you. And I have you made some accommodation for how you are going to protect yourself as and when it's published? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it. Yeah. I didn't know when I spoke to the publishers, the book's coming out in September and I spoke to the publishers at the beginning of the year and they said, do you want to do a book tour? Do you want to go on the road? Do you want to? And of course with COVID-19, all of these things are up mm. there, you know, in doubt anyway. But um, I said, I've, I really don't know how robust I'm going to feel about it at the time. Yeah. And I may just want to go to go abroad and hide. Or I may just turn my phone off and, or I might say, yes, try and get me on Radio 4 and try and get me on a 
and for a television interviews and press interviews and I want to talk about it and I want it out in the world but I really don't know how I'm going to feel about all that um I, I've been told to, by my agent has warned me to expect a bulging mailbag and lots of people wanted to get in touch. And one of the reasons why I went with the publisher that I had, I went with Little Brown, there was, a, there was another publisher interested and that they wanted, they were talking about perhaps um, getting in touch with other people who'd had traumatic childhoods or difficult childhoods who, who perhaps you could share platforms with and um, we, perhaps we should put trigger warnings on the book and put phone numbers in for people who, who are issues that may have been raised and all this sort of thing. And I, I thought, no, this is a, I want to be thought of as a writer here. This is something where mm. the writing of the book is the way I've written the book and the quality of the writing and my, the effort I've made. I've tried to make a piece of art out of it. Something yeah. worthwhile so that some good can come out of such difficult times and and, and I feel robust I don't, it's not a misery memoir I don't feel you know I'm not looking for some I'm not trying to elicit pity at all no that comes That's across what I'm trying to do um, and my wife often says to me the thing she loathes most, most about men is when they come <laughs> to try and chat her up when she was younger is that they would try and elicit pity to get her interest <laughs> and this I'm told by other women is quite a common tactic this no <laughs> This is not what I'm doing at all, and uh, and it's and I. It's nice that you feel protected towards me, but we, we have known each other for quite a long time, and there is a vulnerability in this child, in the in the book, and and the and the book is a is for that boy. In the book, it's it's him. It's for him to be heard. It feels to me like the the man has triumphed over the experiences of the boy and that the message is it might help boys not to have to speak out to talk about things so that there isn't that disconnect because it, it there must be a disconnect between you now and that child because as you said there's no through line everything's secret if nothing can be discussed there's no creative outlets until you hit your 20s and the comedy comes along and and i i i, I found that incredibly moving at, at, at the end is is by being so candid and in such a powerful and beautiful way, you're going to try and let kids who experience similar things be able to have a through line from trauma to recovery without a, a sort of missing gap in the middle where life just flies away and drink and booze or however, whatever other displacement yeah, tactics. Well, I think that's important because um, I'm 54 now, it's taken me a long time. In my 20s, I thought I was making lifestyle choices. Mm. I thought I liked playing on the PlayStation, smoking weed and drinking wine on my own till two in the morning every night. I thought it was normal to feel ragingly angry every time someone spoke to me who I didn't know. <laughs> I just feel that it was normal to not answer the door. Mm. And, and, uh, and I thought also that I want, it was great to be famous or that it was going to be great to be famous. I thought that was going to be, and it was, it was it's awful, as, as, you, as you know. It's, mm. There are very few upsides and you're never allowed to complain because, of course, there are lots of pluses. You're doing work that you love to do and you can, if you're good at it, you get well paid and you can choose what you want to do and so many things that just as a white person in the first world, you're lucky. Yeah, um, yeah. But my God, it's a pain in the neck. You can't.
constantly thinking, can I go on that bus? Can I get on that? Should I go in that pub? Who's, what are, they, are they talking about me? I mean, and if you become paranoid and defensive, it's a disaster. So, but all of these things that I thought were, were lifestyle choices were all, it turns out, consequences of so many factors you know, push me in the direction. And I, I listen, I love doing stand-up comedy and I've really loved David Renwick and, and Jonathan mm. Creek and I was greatly uh, lucky to have met John Lloyd and Stephen Fry and, and all the people who come on QI and, it's, you know, it's been a fantastic career, very, but there have been times when I wish I could just have wear a different face, just have a different face, like a secret identity, you know, like like, uh, like Superman. <laughs> so, what would that face look like? If you could choose, you could sculpt with your own face. You just put glasses on and... <laughs> No one knows it's not going to wash. You just pop a pair of some extra. It's not going to wash. I remember watching, I saw an interview with Tom Cruise once. Oh, such a fantastic actor, Tom Cruise. But he said uh, quite a lot of his friends who were actors, they would put sunglasses on and people didn't recognise them. But in so many of his early roles, he was wearing, <laughs> wearing sunglasses nearly the whole time. No, no one's ever looked better in a pair of sunglasses. No. And no one wears aviators like Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the absolute king of the ray bands as well. I think if you shaved your hair, because your hair, you've got that sort of iconic Aslan kind of sex mop. I think if you took that off, <laughs> you could pass almost anonymously in the streets of London and beyond, I think. Well, I, it was the only thing I could do when I was doing Jonathan Creek and I was also doing adverts on the television, which I used to go, I got quite chastised for, and I always had some guilt about doing adverts. I always said I didn't want to do adverts for Abbey National and the adverts were such a success that the bank had to change their name at the end of the campaign. (laughs) (laughs) All the adverts... To a Spanish port. Yes. They were... uh, I think they were about 18, isn't it? Anyway, they were all directed by John Lloyd and that was where I met... Where were they? That's where I met John Lloyd and while we were doing those adverts for Abbey National and and they finished in 2001, he'd started to have this idea. He said to me, I've had an idea for a panel show where you get points for being interesting. It doesn't matter if you get the answers right or not. Mm. It's not about being a know-all or being clever. But if you respond in an interesting way, it's about being curious and interested. And I said, that sounds brilliant. I really like panel shows where you could go off the cuff, and, you know. And uh, he said, well, you're the only person who said that. Most people think it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were... I said, and he, he said, will you be in the pilot? And I absolutely jumped to the chance. And, uh, and um, then we got to do, they, they gave him a series. And he said, I'm just going to have you. It's not going to be team captains. Stephen's going to host, as he, as he did in the pilot. And it's just going to be you alongside him. And the penny just didn't drop for me for until about the fourth series. So I was a complete patsy. I was the class dunce. I was supposed to be... And and I fell into the role of just pressing a button and saying whatever first thing that came to mind. And, and uh, Patrick Marber, a friend of mine, said to me, You're, you and Stephen Fry on that show is the best situation comedy on television. It's true. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and I'm sure that John Lloyd had sort of seen it, foreseen it. He had some idea of of toffs against oiks, and even though I was a middle-class drama graduate from the University of Kent, I still qualified as the oik. 
And, but it's uh, also that, about the sort of paternal, sort of, the Stephen is this sort of uh, benevolent sort of paternal figure, sort of assuming a level of stupidity which you simply don't have, and that's what makes it funny. Because then, whenever I've done it, you've always said the smartest thing of the night. And then everyone, it, there's this sort of strange thing that happens where people go, gosh, I'm considering he's being forced to play the, the fool. <laughs> he's, he's a genius. <laughs> well... Well, now sometimes I stumble upon nuggets, but I have said, said many, many stupid things on that program. I, I always used to buzz, and even when the klaxon would go off, it would not change my unshaken belief that I was right. Because I'm always happy to accept received wisdom and embed it as pure fact without challenge. <laughs> well, the, the great one for that was Clive Anderson, who would actually... Said no, no, I am right. And then because <laughs> oh, he is a lawyer and he's a incredibly articulate, clever man. God, it would go on for ages. Do you remember the one that we did as part of the twenty-four hour panel shows? We did you do that? It was a comic relief thing, and they ran they ran a panel show for twenty-four hours. So it would be QI, and then they do just a minute, and then they yeah. do Buzzcocks, and they do. Stephen's earpiece broke down, and I can't remember. And you must have been there, but that we just attacked him because it was like the, the robot was malfunctioning. I mean, he's obviously exquisitely, magnificently bright, but even he might not know the intricacies of how encephalopods mate in deep sea. But we would just when he, when there was no elf in the ear, we just sort of on massive like a bullying expedition. It was horrible. Yeah, it was always most fun when Stephen lost control. If Stephen got the giggles, then you then it, that's exactly what would happen. I remember he got the giggles once because he'd lost, he couldn't finish a sentence about the Parthenon at the Metropolis. And he got the giggles, and Bill, Bill Bailey was there with me and Ginny Carr, and it was merciless. It was absolutely merciless. Right. It was tickling someone who's just screaming. <laughs> <at the top. laughs> uh, that's, that's where the sheer fun is, though, is you see, because he's he sort of has this you know, entirely understandable reputation for being Britain's, the universe's smartest dude. And when the cracks appear, everyone surely has to just get in and rip them. They do. I mean, I've sort of, 13 years I worked with him and he, he went through all these ups and downs, mm. including a suicide attempt that I had no idea about, you know, and uh, he was different at different times. I was always fond of him, but he was hard to be get close to really you know um he's read my book and he's wrote me a wonderful email that moved me to tears and um i'm greatly greatly fond of him but his his travails are kind of concealed you know and uh, at the beginning he was quite he was confident and he quite often deny that some of the facts were facts and he would enrage the producers of QI because they, they researched <laughs> it and then you he'd say, well, this is nonsense and throw things away and then just spit in blood in the gallery. But he sort of changed over the years that we did it. Weight went up and down, he had his eyes done, then his glasses were back and then he's, he's so many things. So watching so, so odd to sit next to someone really effectively for 13 years. <laughs> And then, and then, typically, when he decided he wasn't going to do a show anymore, he just didn't say anything. He he recorded what he knew was going to be his last show, and then left. He never wanted a big fussy goodbye, you know. No, but in a way, that's that sort of brings us round 
almost like a perfect bookend to the fact that we're all we're very seen and we're very known but we're also very private and very secretive and so much the, the drive to perform comes from wanting to be in control of what you show and what you don't about your darkness and it's as true for him as it is for me as it is for you I guess we're ultimately cursed with being ubiquitous and unknowable at the same time that's exactly right I read a, a biography recently, I do a podcast about Arsenal with my friends and uh, because there's no actual football going on in the lockdown, we've been, reading, we've been reading football biographies and talking about those. And there's a biography of Thierry Henry. And, <laughs> and he is, Henry is famously quite thin-skinned. Yeah, mm. But there's obviously a vulnerability there. And the journalist said that he was speaking to Arsene Wenger who managed Thierry Henry in France and they managed him at Arsenal for nine years. They were very close. And Wenger said, in this milieu, the two Frenchmen speaking, I can manage milieu, <laughs> in this milieu, people make you pay a high price for your vulnerability. And, I, and it, the profundity of it really stayed with me. This, the people make you pay a high price. If you're a vulnerable person, if you show weakness, if you make mistakes, if you slip up, because you're vulnerable, and you're in, a, you're in an unusual, with Henri, in Henri's case, he was just a magnificent athlete who rose to the top of his profession and didn't put himself in a false place, but found himself falling foul of journalists, particularly in his own country. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I thought that was so profound. You, know, mate, you have to pay a high price for your vulnerability. You, and yet you have been so vulnerable in this book. I, I, I feel that you, God, I hope anyway, but I certainly feel that you won't. I think almost the opposite. I think you will feel hopefully greatly validated by it. Yes, I think I say at the end of the book that it, it, say to whoever the reader is, you know, you may be that you might have a story to tell and you might just feel like you want to be believed. And if someone comes to you or if you feel like going to someone, to just be to be believed is really a... It's not an end in itself, but it's a very big step for, for people who are carrying... Yes, things. exactly. And and I, I, it's moved me in many, 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 many ways, Some because it connects to elements of things that I've been around or experienced, although I would point out not in relation to my family. But also the fact that it's a life's work, isn't it? This, this, is, this is almost the beginning of what will become your life's work to make um, your peace with things. And I, I find it interesting that you don't, even though it's you, it's so you, it's so raw, it's so exposed, you don't want to talk about it because you want the reader to discover it almost as if it's a thriller and therefore a piece of distanced fiction. Yeah, I've tried to write the book. Well, I still have a kind of performance instinct with this. I don't want to be boring. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just know I mean, that. I want you to want to read the next page and, and to discover the story for yourself and... and uh, Personally, I, I hate knowing too much about a film or a television programme or a book in advance. Um, so 
but I, I do feel for people with my book, I, I want them to read it and perhaps be someone might hand it to them and and discover it for themselves, uh, uh, you know, alone and uh, and not to come to it because they've heard about what happens and they want to see how it was handled or something. Yeah. Well, we shall um, not, not discuss it anymore for exactly those reasons because it's a book that's needs to be read and I found as I say very affecting and beautiful and had the hypnotic quality of memory recall you know where things are hazy and imprecise and yet poking through you suddenly get a very crystalline kind of technicolor moment um so as a piece of art I loved it and as a personal revelation I found it very profound and I still want to protect you <laughs> I'm very grateful and thank you for talking to me, I appreciate it. Pleasure. With all love and thanks to Alan. His book, Just Ignore Him, is published by Little Brown and will be available from the 3rd of September and also available as an audiobook. As always, all the music in this podcast is by Waiting for Smith. You can hear more from him directly on Spotify or see him doing live acoustic sets on Facebook. Yes, Just search Waiting for Smith. When I'm down and I'm blue All I do Is stare at the view I'll be heading east To find my peace Where the desert feeds